0: Good morning. Very good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this morning for uh, some time. As Jeff mentioned, I'm Virgil Brown. I pastor Redemption Church in Northeast Portland of Portland, Oregon. Uh, We started our church uh, just over two and a half years ago. If you're doing the math, that's right, right in the heat of the pandemic when Portland was in lockdown. We thought this is a great time to open a new church. actually we wanted to open on easter sunday of 2020 but everyone's easter got blown up that year as did our plans to launch a new ministry and so we picked september as a new launch date september of 2020 thinking like most people by then will be well past this pandemic thing and life will be back to normal Uh, but it wasn't Uh, but still we decided we're going to press forward with our plans to open a new church and by God's grace, he provided us with a a place to meet and with members. And uh, we've gotten to see some really good conversions happen uh, through the ministry and lots of people are growing in Christ. Our church is growing uh, slow and steady. There are 10 of us who came from Henson Baptist Church in Southeast Portland. And we now have just just over uh, 50 members who make up Redemption Church. we see about a hundred on a Sunday. Yeah. That's something to be thankful for. I'm really, really happy about God's work in and through the church, and also uh, happy about God's work in my life and through my family uh, during this church planting endeavor. One of the things that my wife and I, uh, who've been married for 18 years this month, were really excited about was giving our four kids a front row seat so watching God work in people's lives and watching him build the church, and that's really been a, a sweet answer to prayer for my children to be involved in the work and for them uh, at times to be really surprised by God's kindness. So uh, we praise God for that. And my hope with being here this morning and sharing this update is that you will know that uh, because of your prayers and your generosity, our work there in Port- Portland is really an extension of your work here. A third John 8 says when you support people like me or missionaries, church planters and missionaries, uh, that you become a fellow worker in the gospel. So I hope that you're encouraged by the, by the update and also that you uh, would be inspired to support more works like Redemption Church in the future. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. And while you're turning there, I'll just tell you I've been really encouraged by your pastors, by Jeff and by Chris. Um, every time I'm around Jeff, I just feel built up. You know, he's one of those guys. And uh, Chris Short is kind of like a cheerleader for me. So um, he's been encouraging as well. I think you're blessed to have both those men as pastors uh, over this congregation. I consider the book of Acts to be the ultimate how I built this story because it tells a story of how Jesus built his church and how that church has gone global. If you're familiar with the how I built this podcast then you know that entrepreneurs and pioneers hop on and they tell their story with all of the ups and downs about how their businesses went from being an idea and became a successful company. And in telling their stories, they pull back the curtain and tell listeners the steps that they took to achieve success. Well, the book of Acts is like that. It tells the history of the early Christian church. But more than that, in it we find instruction in godliness. In God's word, we learn more about him. We also learn how to live as his people. Uh, Specifically for us this morning, we get to learn from the persuasive and engaging example of the Apostle Paul. In the prior chapter, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his missionary team were forced out of Philippi and Macedonia, so they journeyed to their next strategic location. And as usual, everywhere they went, they had the same mission They wanted to get the gospel out to people. They wanted to tell people about Jesus. And in our passage today, we are given a detailed description of how they engage the city, how they engage that community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, we get to see the blueprint for having effective spiritual conversations. And the Bible will show us that God uses biblical persuasion and creative engagement to build his church. As we walk through Acts 17, we're going to do so thinking about how Paul's method should shape our approach to church planting and to missions and in general to engaging our community with the gospel and having spiritual conversations with our friends, family, and neighbors. Our sermon outline for this morning has two points. Point number one, seek to persuade. We'll see that in verse one through verse four. And point number two, work to engage. We'll see that in verse 16 through 34. And the flow of our sermon will be like moving from the lecture hall into the, into the lab. So first, that first point, we're going to be in the lecture hall learning about persuasion. And then we're going to see that persuasion in action in our second point. We're going to go into the lab and learn how we can engage our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look now at chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. Five points are made in these four verses about Paul's missionary method, that persuasive method. First in verse one, we see that Paul made the best use of the time. Paul targeted, again, a densely populated area where he could have the the most influence for the gospel. He went to Thessalonica, which was the second largest city in Greece. So he went to this major city. And then once in that city, he went to a synagogue where he knew he would find religious people who were open to having spiritual conversations. The second point about Paul's missionary method that we see is that he emphasized the authority of God's Word. Verse 2 tells us that he reasoned with people from the Scriptures. That means that the basis for everything that he had to say was built on the authority of God's Word. Well, like the Apostle Paul, we believe that all Scripture is divinely authored by God. Uh, without error and completely trustworthy. That belief is based on 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, what the Bible says, God says. So in preaching the Bible, Paul's objective was not to tell people his thoughts or his opinions. His objective was to declare God's word, his will, his mind, his heart. This is good for us to note. As we reason with people who don't know Jesus, we should aim to speak truth from God's word, emphasizing the authority of the Bible in our lives. Thirdly, verse 3 tells us that Paul explained the gospel. Uh, that word explained here means opened elsewhere. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 16 to describe how God opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 24 to describe the events that happened on the Emmaus Road. On the Emmaus Road, two people were talking to Jesus. They didn't know that it was Jesus. And the Bible says that their eyes were opened to recognize him that Jesus opened the scriptures to them, that he opened their minds to understand. This word explain relates to opening what was once closed, causing to see what was not seen before. And it implies two things. It implies the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's help to open people's minds. And it also implies that there was clarity This means that when engaging with others to tell them about Jesus, we should do so prayerfully. We depend on the work of the Holy Spirit to open their minds and we should do so with a plan. I don't think that the apostle Paul always spoke extemporaneously. I think he prepared what he wanted to say and he was ready when God provided him with an opportunity to speak on behalf of Jesus. Fourth, we are told in verse 3 that Paul proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to be raised from the dead. Now you might be wondering, how do you prove that? Uh, the word translated proof in our text is most often used in the scripture to describe setting a meal or setting food beside a guest. So the nature of Paul's proving was him making a point and then setting the evidence beside that point. So the apostle Paul would have said something like, Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place and for your sins. And then he would prove that point by pointing the crowd to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Paul would say, that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. So in that way he proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to be buried, and to be raised from the grave. We likewise prove the gospel when we appeal to the witness of the scripture. This is why when we're doing good evangelism, faithful evangelism, we want to do it with an open Bible. We want to be pointing people back to God's word because our goal ultimately is to get them before the living God. And Fifthly, Through reasoning, explaining, and proving, verse 3 says, that Paul proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. So he took the historical Jesus and he declared him to be the Christ of Scripture. That is central to our Christian witness. Jesus is the long-awaited, the highly anticipated Messiah. He is the King. There is no Jesus myth. He was not a spiritual figure who became larger than life after his death as has been the case with others, his death and the purpose of his death, as well as his resurrection from the grave. It was foretold. It was prophesied for us in the Bible. So the apostle Paul, when he goes into the, to a city, he wasn't like working with people seeking a meaning for the death and resurrection of Jesus, he reasoned from the Bible explaining and proving that the historical Jesus, the Jewish carpenter born of the Virgin Mary, over 2000 years ago, that that man is the eternal Son of God, and he proclaimed those things publicly. So in seeking to persuade, Paul emphasized the authority of the Scripture he reasoned from the scripture. He explained the gospel. He proved that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to be raised from the grave. And then he proclaimed him as the Christ. And the response in Thessalonica is seen in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. And then, after leaving Thessalonica and going on to Berea, where he deployed the same persuasive strategy, there was another fruitful outcome. Skip down now to verse 12. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women, as well as men, We see here in Acts chapter 17 that our goal as Christians is not merely to inform the public of our biblical worldview. Our goal is to persuade. We want them to know that what we say is truth. We want to change their minds about Jesus Christ. So we reason with them from God's word. We explain the gospel. We prove our point from the Bible. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim to them the truth about Jesus Christ. Well, you might be wondering, what does that look like? How do I find these avenues for engaging the city with the gospel in that kind of way? Well, now our sermon moves from the lecture hall to the lab, from theory to hands-on engagement. The second half of our sermon takes us into Athens, where we get to see Paul engage that community with the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the fifth century B.C. It had this rich philosophical tradition that it inherited from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The city also had notable achievements in literature, art, and human liberty. It was also an aesthetically pleasing city and culturally sophisticated, but at the same time it was morally debauched and spiritually deceived. Look now at verse 16 through verse 34. While Paul was waiting for them, his team in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, would you worship in ignorance? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things from one man. He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What a great scene. And we learn four things from Paul's engagement, engaging Athens with the gospel. The Bible tells us what he saw, and that shows us that we should open our eyes to our community. The Bible tells us what he felt, and and, and that shows us that we should should open our hearts to our community. The Bible tells us what he did, and that shows us that we should open our lives and our skills and our abilities to our community for the glory of God. And the Bible tells us what he said, which shows us that we should open our mouths and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community. First, again, what Paul saw in verse 16, he saw a city that was full of idols. This is a striking summary. Paul could have walked around Athens as a tourist, taking in all of the sights something that we might have done. After all, Athens again was a city filled with great artistry and amazing architecture. Paul could have been spellbound as he walked through the marketplace and saw all of the sculptures and heard all of the eloquent debates, but none of those things struck him. First and foremost, what Paul saw was not the city's beauty, but its idolatry. Our Bible says that Athens was full of idols and not just full. The idea here conveyed in verse 16 is that the city was smothered in idols or swamped by idols. Idols were all around like popping up in new locations every day. Paul saw a city submerged in its idols. And what those idols were, were God substitutes. That's what idols are. Any person or thing that wants to occupy God's place in our lives. In order to engage our city with the gospel, we should open our eyes and get a read on the worship in our community. Uh, For example, When I look around the city of Portland, the Portland metro area, I can pretty quickly see that leisure, going out to eat, doing brunch, leisure and then recreation, all of the opportunities that the gorge and the mountain and the rivers and the ocean provides, that those things are very much a God substitute in people's lives. Those things are a really big deal to people in Portland. People move to Portland for those reasons, for the food, for the drink and for the outdoors. So as I'm opening my eyes to my city, I might say that eat, drink and be merry is one of the major religions of Portland. And then that knowledge can give me an idea of how to talk to people about Jesus. Those people are living in the right now. They're they're living in the moment. And my job, our job is to get their eyes up to heaven and to get them thinking about larger things and thinking about eternity. I think that members of Edgewood, Bible Church should do your own mapping of the area and try and put your finger on what the idols are in your community. That's what Paul saw. Next, we learn what he felt. Verse 16 also tells us that he was deeply distressed that his spirit was provoked within him. Paul's reaction to what he saw led his spirit to be continuously provoked. Now, the clue to interpreting the nature of Paul's emotions here is the way that the verb deeply distressed is used in other passages. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used consistently to describe God's reaction to idolatry. So when the Israelites made that golden calf at Mount Sinai, or later when they were guilty of Baal worship, or when the northern kingdom built their own golden calf, the Bible says that those acts provoked God to anger. So, the Apostle Paul was provoked inwardly, he was deeply distressed, just as God is himself for the very same reason. The Bible often calls that emotion jealousy. This emotion is so closely linked with God that Exodus 34 says, he is a jealous God. Jealousy meaning God has a resentment of his rivals. Now, whether jealousy is good or bad depends on whether or not a rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty or in brains or in sport, that's sinful jealousy. But on the other hand, if a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who has been displaced is righteous because the intruder had no business being there. Well, that's the same with God. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Our creator God has a right to our exclusive loyalty and is jealous if we transfer that loyalty to anyone or anything else. And the people of God, who love God's name, share in a jealousy for the honor of His name. So, the pain that the Apostle Paul felt in Athens that day was not about his mood. It was due to the state of idolatry in that city, which provoked him to jealousy for the honor of Jesus Christ. I think <clears throat> and that Paul's response to idolatry is significant because being deeply distressed, being inwardly provoked, that would be his motivation for gospel witness in Athens. Please notice that the Bible does not say that Paul was purely motivated by love for the Athenians. It doesn't say that he fell deeply in love with the people there. No, the Bible says he was provoked. I don't think that you have to be totally in love with a community in order to serve that community. I think you can be frustrated and faithful at the same time. Now, what follows in our passage is one of the most significant events in the New Testament and the motivation for what Paul did and what he said was due in part to his agitation, to his irritation with the culture around him. It's okay to be stirred up by things that you see in your community and want to see those things change. There's a time when Christians should be moved to action by a jealousy for the honor of Jesus Christ. But Paul's jealousy, it didn't result in him merely throwing up his hands in despair, cursing and swearing at the Athenians. He wasn't like one of those members of Westboro Baptist Church, holding up a sign that says God hates sinners, you know. Paul's response was much more positive. It was constructive. He reached out to them. He sought to turn them away from idols to faith in the living God. Thirdly now, we learn what Paul did. Look again at verse 17. Again, the Bible says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also came and debated with him. Paul reasoned with a variety of people in a variety of places. He went to the synagogue, which was a religious place. He went to the marketplace, which was a public gathering place. He talked with Jews and God seekers who were religious people. He spoke with Epicureans who were scientific people. He spoke with the Stoics who were spiritual people. And because we have knowledge of his persuasive method, we know he wasn't just engaging in an open debate. Paul reasoned from the scriptures, he spoke Uh, with the authority of God's word, with certainty about Jesus, and he was seeking to change their minds about the gospel. When we read this, we have to admit Paul had a lot of evangelistic gain. This is impressive, man. His gospel fluency was off the charts, so we cannot help but admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal skill, to religious people in the synagogue, to casual passersby in the city square, to these highly sophisticated philosophers in the marketplace, it's amazing. But the message here, the message for the church, is not for us to individually try to mimic the apostle Paul. Instead, our text is showing us the need for gospel witness in a variety of settings and among various kinds of people. We need extroverts who are really comfortable putting themselves out there with people to go out and and gossip the gospel in informal settings. Uh, The gospel needs to get out on the farm and on the factory floor. We need to get, get the gospel out to our dinner tables and in the break room and in coffee shops and in school cafeterias and on college campuses and through film and online and in print. We need Tolkien's and Lewis's writing beautiful fiction that depict the gospel. We need people like LeCrae rapping the gospel. We need bands like Disciple rocking out to the gospel. We need Tim Tebow and Jeremy Lynn playing sports for the glory of God, drawing attention to Jesus. You see, part of engaging the community with the gospel means leveraging your skills and your talents for God consider how the Lord has built you and even what interests you might have and pray that God would use all of those things for his glory in your own spheres of influence, doing what you can with what God has given you. Open up your lives to leverage your gifts and your abilities to engage your community with the gospel. Paul's ministry in the marketplace was so effective that he gained an audience before the Areopagus. That's Mars Hill. Ares meaning Mars, Pegas meaning hill. Mars Hill was the meeting place of the ancient Athenian council. They were responsible for weighing matters of religion and philosophy in Athens. This was a tremendous opportunity to speak for Jesus Christ. And now we consider again what Paul said. Paul's introduction to his speech pointed out this altar that they had, which was inscribed to an unknown God. And he said, would you worship in ignorance this I proclaim to you. So the Apostle Paul entered the Areopagus and he used their own acknowledgement of their ignorance as an open door for the gospel of Jesus. And then after engaging his audience, Paul went on to deliver a logical five-point speech that argued against idolatry. His first point is that God is the creator of the universe. God made the world and everything in it. This view of the world was very different from the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that the world came into existence through chance, very similar to the Big Bang theory The Stoics believed uh, that everything was God and God was in everything, they were pantheists. Well, Paul rightly preached that God is the personal creator of everything that exists. And since God is creator, how can anyone believe that he lives in a little shrine made by human hands? The second point he made is that God is the sustainer of life. In verse 25, he said, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Here, Paul was saying, we depend on God. God does not depend on us. God sustains our lives. So it's wrong to think that God needs us to supply him with a dwelling place. His third point is that God is the ruler of all the nations. From one man, he made every nationality. And Paul's reference to the allotted periods and the boundaries of these nations refers to the events of histories and the limits of a nation's territory. So he's saying the rise and the fall of kingdoms and the advancement of empires, that's all determined by God. And God's great purpose in doing all of that, in determining the whole course of history, is so that people made in his image would seek him and the description given in these verses of people seeking him, specifically these Athenians, is of a blind man groping and fumbling and kind of feeling his way around. That was the case for this crowd. They had made this altar to an unknown God that they knew existed, but they were blind to the truth about this God. They did not ascribe to him the worship that was due to his name. And point number four, God is the father of human beings. And then Paul quoted one of their own uh, poets to say, for we are indeed His, his offspring. Because we are his offspring created by God in his image, we are living, breathing beings. It is silly to think that God is like silver or gold or stone, which is lifeless. We're made in his image. We're alive. Our God also must be alive. How can God be represented by lifeless objects which owe their origin to human imagination?" So Paul made these stunning arguments. God is creator, God is sustainer, God is ruler, God is father, and in his speech he sought to put God in his rightful place. The Athenians, through their idolatry, try to minimize the gulf between the greatness of God, the creator, and his creatures. And that's what idolatry always tries to accomplish. The idolater wants to bring God down and lift themselves up. But what was the Apostle Paul doing? He's lifting up God and he's humbling the Athenian court. The big idea of his message was that their idolatry was a rebellion against God which led Paul to his final point. God is the judge of the whole world. Look at verse 30 again. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. Paul returned to the topic of ignorance at the end of his speech. The Athenians open acknowledgement of their ignorance was his introduction when he pointed to that altar to the unknown God. And then he used that ignorance as the basis for his conclusion. He declared that they would be held accountable for that ignorance. In past times he said, God, overlooked their ignorance. But as John Stott said, it is not that he did not notice it, nor that he acquiesced in it as excusable, but that in his forbearing mercy he did not visit upon it the judgment it deserved. But now all people everywhere are commanded to repent. They were urged to repent because of the certainty of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. God has fixed a day. God will judge the whole world. He will judge the world in righteousness. That means He will judge our sins. Jesus is that judge in the assurance that we have of that coming day. It's His resurrection from the grave. Jesus Christ was vindicated by God through His resurrection from the dead. That means that all of his claims about being the Son of God, about being the Christ, the Messiah, were proved right when God raised his dead body to life eternal. Paul preached the gospel to this crowd and he called them to repentance in light of the coming judgment of our Savior. Paul's speech to the Areopagus was a five point message that presented a biblical worldview and exposed the folly of idolatry. But I would argue that the primary message to the church to take away for you is not necessarily turn away from idols, though some of you might need to turn away from idols. Instead, what I think the Apostle Paul said in Athens challenges us in one primary way. It challenges us to preach the full gospel. Many reject our message, not because they think it's false, but because they think it's trivial. When we say things like, Jesus will give you companionship, Jesus wants to fill that void, that emptiness in your life, or or Jesus can give you peace of mind, Jesus wants to, to use you to be a blessing to others. When unbelievers hear that, they must be wondering, why would I reorient my life and turn from the pleasures of sin and submit to the commands of Christ and commit myself to a body of believers when I can have everything that you say Jesus provides without having a relationship with him. The apostle Paul did not preach a watered down gospel about a wimpy God. His points again were God is the creator of the universe. God is the sustainer of all life. God is the ruler of the nations. God is father and God is righteous judge. That message is compelling. It was a message like that, that God used to give me salvation. I grew up in a Christian home, I grew up in the church, and for many years I thought I was good with God, that Jesus liked me because I liked him, I was really familiar with Christianity and thought that I was one of Jesus's top disciples. I thought me and Jesus are really cool because I knew the Bible stories really well. I could answer all the, all the questions that were asked in Sunday school. Uh, one summer, while I was away at my grandparents' house, uh, they signed me up for a VBS that was happening at their church, so I went happily. And for the first four days of the VBS, again, I thought I was a rock star uh, for Jesus Christ. On that last day, though, I heard a message from a lady about judgment. It was about hell. And she made it really clear that only people who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation would be saved and that the rest would go to hell. It terrified me. I mean, it shook me hard. Well, it it was that message that God used to open my eyes to see that Christ is not just my friend, but he is my judge. And then I ran to Jesus in faith because I did not want to spend eternity in hell. I could not provide an alternative route to heaven. Jesus Christ was my only way. My fear is that in our haste to be relevant, and to help people by speaking to felt needs that we have deceived many who now believe that they are Christian like I did, but who remain unconverted. There are folks who find therapy in Jesus, but who don't find salvation in Jesus. That's you this morning. If you've been around the church, if you grew up in the church, if you're really comfortable here, really familiar with the Bible, but you're you're more of a fan and admirer of Jesus, or you just kind of dig the values of Christianity and you want those values to rub off on you or influence your family, that's you. I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, to, to trust in Him for everything that you need and to be saved. Your pastor and your elders will be happy to speak with you after the service about how you can be saved, and I'm certain many of the Christians seated around you this morning would be happy to have that conversation as well. The Lord has given us a model in Acts 17 for how to engage the city with the gospel. We individually and corporately want to have an impact for Jesus Christ. Uh, We do this when we open our eyes to the lostness of our community. Look around you, look at how people are deceived and pray for them. we, We do this, we engage the city with the gospel when we open our hearts to feel a godly jealousy for the honor of Jesus Christ. We engage the city with the gospel when we open our lives to use our gifts and our abilities, leveraging everything that God has given us to have an influence for Christ. And we do this primarily when we open our mouths and tell others the truth about Jesus. These things matter because God uses our biblical persuasion and our creative engagement to build up his church, to turn lives around, and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord God, We thank you for the faithful witness of this congregation. And Father, we pray that you would only strengthen that witness in their work here in this community. Lord God, we pray that you would provide everything that they need so that they can live and act in a way that is pleasing in your sight. We pray, Lord, that you would grow the influence, the gospel influence of this church. God, we pray that you would give them a a wider reach with the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would stir us all up to live on mission for Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name, amen.